Ladies and gentlemen, finally, the time has come. The waves, the water, the lifeguards. The bikinis. The Mojo Radio Show Summer Series, live from Bondi Beach. The most iconic beach on the planet. Hey everybody and welcome to week two of the Summer Series on the Mojo Radio Show, live from the beautiful Bondi Beach. We are perched on a table, perched, a card table, let's face it. It's a low-budget show. Yeah. We are perched at a table right in front of the Bondi Pavilion, directly across the road from the Bondi Lifesaving Tower, which yeah. is made famous on Bondi Rescue, the television series, which goes out across the globe. So a lot of our international guests probably know exactly where we are. Uh, everybody is here. Now, the only person missing is AP because with week one of the series, AP finally found a park, um, came down, said good day, but then the bus got towed. Well, and unfortunately, he, his parking spot was outside the, in the no-standing zone out the front of the Bondi police station. And he's now been towed, and we have not seen AP in a week. <laughs> so he's probably on Oxford Street somewhere. But anyway, let's, that be as it may. Lola is here. Hello, Lola. I'm ready. Does my CPU look big in this bikini? Uh, Lola in a bikini is not a bad look, I've got to be honest. Now, before we start, remarkable facts. Remarkable facts. Robbo's Remarkable Facts. Let's go. Did you know that up until 1902, it was actually illegal to swim in the surf at any beach in the Sydney area, basically because it was considered indecent. Now, in 1902, a famous gentleman decided that he was going to cover himself in neck-to-toe swimmers and took to the water at Manly Beach. Uh, and after a, an outcry when he was arrested and, and a whole bunch of protests, the laws were changed and in 1903 it became legal to swim at Sydney beaches and uh, change rooms and uh, facilities and all that sort of stuff started to be erected. So pretty crazy when you think about uh, the country that we live in. That makes for a great piece of radio. <laughs> Hi, I'm Arturo. I'm Cristina. We're from Guatemala. And, and we, we love, love the Mojo Radio Show. All summer long. Keep it turned up. Summertime. The Mojo Radio Show Summer Series. Live from Bondi Beach. Our guest this week is another repeat offender. James Clear is, well, he's an author, an entrepreneur, and he's a very well-known photographer. Now, he was on the show in October of Season 5 is in Australia doing a speaking tour for his new book, Atomic Habits. Now, that book itself has sold over one million copies, made it to the New York Times bestselling list, and according to, to James, uh, a lot of it had to do with him being on the show the first time around when Atomic Habits first came out. So, I mean, look, you know, we're, we're humble about that whole thing, but let's take it. James actually came to prominence from jamesclear.com, which is a, a blog he has, which has got a bajillion, which is more than a billion subscribers around the world. He's a prolific writer, but the thing I like about James is he doesn't just put stuff out for the sake of putting it out. He actually writes very usable, practical stuff that can help us be more productive, create the right habits, and he's decided to come down to Bondi Beach, join us here at the picnic table. James, welcome back to the Mojo Radio Show. Thank you. It's uh, great to be here, and beautiful day, too. It's nice to see something clear on a hazy day. Yeah, right. Yeah, we got all the yeah. smoke here. It's uh, it's good, though. It's cleared up throughout the afternoon. It looks pretty good, though. We are pretty fortunate. We have had the worst fire season in the history of our country, which is going on right now, and there are some million acres under fire at the present time, so you guys in California would certainly know what that's like mm. with the wildfires. Yeah, for sure. Tell me something, um, 2012, jamesclear.com, you created a whole 
movement and following around your blog. And you said back then that you felt like an imposter. Mm. With the success of the book and writing the book, did that ever did that ever feature in the writing of this book, this book Atomic Habits? Did you find that at all during that process? Uh, well, it featured, but probably in like a behind the scenes way, in the sense that I'm like uh, continually worried about the ideas being good enough. You know what I mean? So like, there's you, you could either I think you could either let imposter syndrome or whatever we want to call it, uh, feeling like you're not an expert or not good enough or you're not ready. But however you want to term it, but you could either let that paralyze you, and so that's like a very unhealthy form of it, where you're like, ah, oh, I just shouldn't start because I'm not ready, or you could let it drive you, where it's like sort of a paranoia of like I should always put another hour in, I should work harder, I should do more due diligence, I should research more about this topic, I should read widely, and then it kind of what it ends up doing is making the work better. Um, still might not be super healthy, still still might be stressful. <laughs> it's a process, um, but uh, it makes the it is a one of them is a form of procrastination and one of them is a form of motivation and I think using it as motivation to act and to drive and to build better uh, do better work that's kind of where I fall with, on it now um, but I do I mean, you know I'm constantly questioning like are these ideas good enough is this useful enough is this uh, something that people will actually find valuable is it um, both and it's so hard to strike this balance both widely applicable uh, to a, most people would find it useful as, as universal as possible, and yet also highly specific and actionable. Um, and that's really hard to strike that balance. But I'm, so I'm kind of continually using that feeling of, uh, I don't feel like this is quite enough to try to get to that place. Something that, I mean, I love the book. Something you talk about in the book was creating small habits to help your readers or people fulfill their own potential. Mm. Have you fulfilled your own potential? No, I don't think so. I think it's very easy to just say no to that. Uh, potential is a weird quality um, in the sense that is it ever really tapped out? Like, I don't, I don't know that you ever could fully fulfill it. Um, maybe you could fulfill it within a particular domain or over a certain time period. Like, for example, I feel that way about my college baseball career. I feel like I did fulfill my potential for those four years. Um, but man, I wish I got a fifth year because yeah, you exactly. know, like I feel like there, I feel like there was more, feel like there was more to do there. Um, and so, yeah, in, the, in that sense, I'm I'm not quite sure that you can ever fully max out what that potential is. You know, you could always find a better strategy, work slightly harder, work slightly more effectively, meet a new person that could open up an avenue that you didn't previously have. Um, yeah, there's a. There's like almost an infinite number of things that you could do that could then unlock just a little bit more of the potential you have. And it's kind of part of that, the, you talk about the breaking through the latent potential, that barrier of latent potential. Did, mm. in, in your own mind, did this book help you break through your own latent potential barriers or that the ceiling over that? Did, mm. Was it part of the process for you? Uh, yes, I think so, but uh, maybe slightly differently than the way you termed it in the sense that so the concept of latent potential, the way that I like to describe it is uh, imagine like you're heating up an ice cube, right? And so you have this ice cube sitting on the table, you're in a room, it's cold, you can see your breath, it's like below freezing, and then you're gradually heating it up, you know, maybe you're three degrees below freezing, and then two degrees, and then one degree, and the ice cube's still sitting there, and then you go that final degree, and it's the one degree shift, just like all the others that came before it, but suddenly the ice cube melts, you hit this phase transition. 
And I think that process of uh, heating up the room or heating up the ice cube, that's kind of what I mean when I talk about latent potential in the sense that you're putting in your reps, you're building up this capacity to get the outcome that you want, but the outcome hasn't happened yet. The ice cube hasn't melted yet. And people say that a lot of the time with their habits. They'll say like, oh, I've been running for a month. I can't see a change in my body. Or I've been working on this book for seven months now. It still isn't finished, so the manuscript is a mess. And my argument is working on a book for five months and complaining about it not being complete or running for three weeks and not seeing a change in your body is kind of like complaining about eating an ice cube but not hitting the, the melting point yet. You know, like the work was not wasted, it's just being stored. And I love that uh, quote, the San Antonio Spurs, the NBA basketball team, they have this quote in their locker room. They've won five championships. The, the quote says, uh, whenever I feel like giving up, I think about the stone cutter who takes his hammer and bangs on the rock a hundred times without it showing a crack. And then on the 101st blow, it splits in two. And I know that it wasn't the 101st that did it, but all the hundred that came before. And your habits are exactly like that. It's not the last sentence that writes the book. It's all the ones that came before. It's not the last rep that changes your body. It's all the workouts that came before. And in that sense, yes, I think Atomic Habits definitely felt like that for me in, in the sense that now we've released all this latent potential. It's sold a million copies worldwide. It's done really well. I'm getting to do all these interesting things, coming here, right, sitting on the beach, interviewing with you all, coming to Australia. Um, there are all these things that have come out of it, all this latent potential that now has been realized, but it was all the reps over those three to five years that I was working on the book when I didn't have the result yet. That was the building up of that, and eventually you got to that ice cube melting moment where it was released. It's a bit like the fifth Tim Tam, Gary. That's the one that satisfies. <laughs> James, the, something you talk about, which I think is really powerful, which I really hadn't considered so much with habits before, was it creating an identity. Mm. And it's something I've been talking to a lot of people about. And when you go, you talk about going for a run. Yeah. People go for a run, there's a point where you become a runner. You might do some writing, there's a point where you say, no, I'm a writer. Right. Since writing the book, it's, it seems like a powerful concept. Have you got a lot of traction behind that with people saying that's kind of one of the missing pieces that I haven't had there to unlock that latent potential? Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad you brought it up. I think one, to answer your question, yes, that's definitely been, I would say, they're, uh, at least among the three to five ideas that seem to resonate the most of the book, identity-based habits or specifically the concept of every action you take is a vote for the type of person you want to become. That idea is certainly one of the main ideas that resonate with people. Um, I also am kind of partial to that idea because the majority of the book, and I say this in the introduction, is a synthesis of all the best ideas that people have come up with around habits. And I, I want it to be like a comprehensive look at how habits work, what they are, how to change them. And for the most part, that science and research has been covered over the last hundred years. Um, but the identity piece, I think, is one of the most unique aspects that I was able to bring to the conversation. So in that sense, I'm like partial to it because I kind of feel like it was more my idea than many of the other ones were. Um, but ultimately, as you just mentioned, like the goal is not to run a marathon. The goal is to become a runner. The goal is not to write a book. The goal is to become a writer. And there's something very meaningful that happens when you shift uh, from focusing on like outcome-based change or results-based change to identity-based change. Because true behavior change is really identity change. It's really looking at yourself in a new way. You know, once you say like, you hear people say this when they go through a transformation, they'll say like, uh, 
oh yeah, I used to have to motivate myself all the time to go work out, but now working out is just like part of who I am. Or yeah, it used to, it took me a lot of focus in the beginning to build a meditation habit, but now like I'm a meditator, it's just what I do. And once you hit those like transitions in identity, that's a very big shift because it's like, you're not even really pursuing behavior change anymore. You're just acting in alignment with who you already see yourself to be. Like, God, oh, this is what a meditator does every Monday. I, just, this is what I sit down on the pillow and I meditate for 10 minutes. Um, so I think ultimately the way that habits link into that is that small habits, 1% changes, little actions, even, you know, like, no, doing one push up does not transform your body, but it does cast a vote for I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And no, writing one sentence does not finish the novel, but it does cast a vote for I'm a writer. And the more that you cast those votes, in the beginning, it doesn't mean a whole lot, but man, at some point you start to, you can't deny the evidence. You know, you're like, I keep studying biology every Tuesday night for 20 minutes. I guess I'm studious. You know, like you, you start to, those actions provide evidence for who you are and that self-image that you have. I think that's the most powerful way to change your beliefs about yourself is to build up evidence of actually being that person. I think that's probably the true reason, the real value that habits actually provide. We also, we talk about the values that habits provide like, uh, oh, it'll help you get six pack abs or double your income or lose weight. And like, yes, the habits can do all those things. But the real long-term thing it does is it shifts the way you look at yourself. Mm. I'm sort of take an off-ramp and come back to that. I'd be the sort of person who would, because I think it's really, sure. really important. When you were writing the book and or writing your blog, identity has been a bit of a theme for us over the years in, in different ways, from sports psychology to the stuff you're talking about. Yeah. In the middle there was a guy called Todd Herman who wrote The Alter Ego. Effect. Yeah, I know Todd. You know Todd? Mm -hmm. Okay. So Todd talks about you have this identity you step into, which can help you to get through perceived barriers mm -hmm. and maybe take you to places you wouldn't normally go to, but because it's I'm I'm that I'm identifying with that person, it gets me through those. Have you like ever you flip had a switch like a, the, it, when you step between the lines to play a basketball game? That's when the alter ego comes on, the new identity, and you yeah. become that person for that period of your life. Yeah. So the example that our listeners would know is we interviewed Susie Quattro. Susie walks on stage. Susie Quattro. Off stage, she's little Susie from Detroit. Yeah. So I Got said to her, well, who am I talking to? She said, what do you want to talk about? <laughs> if you talk about rock and roll and being on stage, you're talking to Susie Quattro. Right. Growing up, my parents, my background, my house, I think it's Susie from Detroit. Yeah. Did you have an identity that you stepped into when you're writing? Do you have a jamesbleed.com alter ego hmm. that you see as your identity you actually step into when you are typing? Uh, so I had that much more as an athlete. Uh, hmm. So when I played baseball through college, like I definitely had that kind of like, you know, uh, I would just like repeat these mantras to myself whenever I was on the field, like keep attacking or things like that. Whereas like that was a very different mode than what I would be in the other, say, 20 hours of the day. Um, writing the book, I would say, was more from an identity standpoint or something like that. It was kind of more the way that maybe an actor or an actress would treat their job. Like you hear about this sometimes. I heard recently um, uh, Remy Malik, the guy who mm -hmm. uh, played in um, Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, Bohemian yep. Rhapsody. And then also uh, Mr. Robot. He said that when he was uh, getting ready to take on the role in Mr. Robot, his, his character is supposed to be very secretive and like hiding from cameras and worried about surveillance and so on. And so for like a week, he just wore a hoodie around New York City and tried to not be picked up, have his face picked up by like any camera. And that was, yeah, he right. wasn't, right? He was just like trying to become that person. Mm. And writing the book was very much like that for me in the sense that it consumed all of my life for that period where like 
you know, I went to bed, I was thinking about it. I dreamt about it. I woke up. It was the first thing I worked on. So it was much less like a sports game where I like had, you know, four hours where I stepped into this identity and then mm. stepped out of it. Mm. It was more like I was kind of surrounded by it for, you know, six months or something where I was like very deep in it. Um, the process of writing the book took somewhere, depending on how you measure it, three to five years. Um, so I wasn't like that for that whole five-year period, but for the most intense, like six to nine months, it was mostly I'm just always in that mode. Mm -hmm. um, one final thing on that, I, <laughs> it's weird to say, but I probably didn't identify as an author until about like six months after the book came out. That's what I was going to ask you. <laughs> I, did, I didn't really, I, I much more, so I, first, I've run my business for eight years, but I've only had a book for one. Yeah. So I identify as an entrepreneur more than an author. Uh, the author is like the more new aspect of the identity. Now, for a while there, I started to identify as a writer at some point because, okay, for the, after three years, I'd written an article every twice a week for every three years. Mm. And it was kind of like, yeah, I guess it's like writer, blogger, whatever. It's kind of like what I do. But I still saw it in service to the business. And so I saw myself more as an entrepreneur or as a, um, as a craftsman if that makes sense. Like mm. I was trying to make something beautiful. Most people don't think about yeah. an email newsletter being beautiful mm. or a blog post being beautiful, but I, in some sense, I wanted it to mm. be that. I wanted the quality to be so great that it felt kind of like it was a work of art. Mm. Um, and you know, most of the time you don't hit that. Most of the time you miss, but that was the, the what I was shooting for. Um, and you know, <laughs> the I don't know, the writing aspect has come a little slower. I think if you were to go to like any of my high school teachers or my college professors, they'd be like, yeah, he was fine. Like he was, he was <laughs> okay. fine. He was he a fine, fine writer. He was it was, yeah, it was like B plus. <laughs> it was fine. Um, so I really have kind of more gradually come into that element of it. Uh, it, it wasn't a natural piece. To I'm going to come back to that. I've got an off-brand to take on that. Sure. Carly, you guys went to Kenya, 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 was it called? Kenya, uh, Kenya bookstore? Yep. yep. Yeah. So when you walk into Kenya, Kenya, or Barnes and Noble, or right. any of these bookstores. Mm -hmm. Did you find you had to switch, switch a switch to go? I'm now in this place as an author, mm. as opposed to I was a writer, oh, as a, a customer, very <laughs> successful blogger. Yeah. Was that actually something you had to step into? Going, actually, these people are here to see me, and they're here to buy and get my get my book signed. Because that's kind of an identity, isn't it? Yeah, that part's still a little uh, weird for me or strange for me in the sense that um, I mostly view my readers and I as peers. Uh, I mean that is, seriously. The subscribers to my blog, or like we're all going through it together. You know, like I don't, I don't have any some master secret about habits or anything. Like I, I struggle with all the same things everybody else does. You don't, you don't have any secrets to share today. It's just all right. <laughs> all right over. I see we have time right. to go home. We're out. Hey, P, bring the bus around, please. Somebody get a surfboard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, but uh, I guess what I mean is like, I, you know, I'm working on all the same things that everybody else is. And the, uh, really the only difference between my readers and myself is when I come across a lesson or an idea, like I write about it and share it on the blog or email it out or uh, write a book about it, I guess. Um, but for the most part, I view that as like, yeah, we're on the same level. And so it is a little strange like to be recognized in an airport or to walk into a bookstore and do a signing or something like that. One thing that's helped me a little bit with that that I was surprised about was um, signing a deal with Penguin Random House. Like they're, That's what they do. They work with authors. Once you've signed a deal with them, it's like, oh, it's a professional thing. It's a, you know, it's a book. And so um, 
Yeah, it's just easier in that sense. You walk into the bookstore and, you know, like Tally's with me and she's like, oh, I'm with Penguin Random House. It's like, okay, this is what we're doing now. Do you know what I mean? Like legit. It's, it's legit. Yeah, I don't know. It just adds a different, it adds a little more professional air to it. It's a little bit less about me and a little bit more like this is how publishing works. Um, so I don't think I feel like I have a switch that I flip or whatever, but it's still, I'm still getting like used to it. Why, why is it that we find it so easy to stick to bad habits that we need to buy a book and listen to a person like you to create new good habits? It's a great question. Maybe it's like the central question about how habits work and how they're formed. And I actually, that question and like a version of it really helped me when I was working on the book. So I'll give you sort of a, a fuller roundabout answer here. So broadly speaking, you can think of pretty much all human behaviors as having multiple outcomes. So on the one hand, we could put it in like two buckets. On the one hand, you have like an immediate outcome and then you have like the ultimate outcome. And the immediate outcome for most bad habits is somewhat favorable. Like the immediate outcome of eating a donut is kind of great. It's sweet, sugary, it's tasty, it's enjoyable. It's only the ultimate outcome a year or two or five, if you keep doing that, that's unfavorable. <laughs> even uh, and, and the fish and chips and tartar sauce just quietly. Right. Okay. Or like uh, even, even smoking a cigarette, right? Like the, the immediate outcome of smoking a cigarette is maybe you get to socialize with friends outside of work or you curb your nicotine craving or you reduce stress. It's only the ultimate outcome two or five years later that's very unfavorable. Um, with good habits, it's often the reverse Would in the sense that like, especially in the beginning, your first week in the gym, your body hasn't really changed. If anything, you're maybe a little sore. Like you don't really have much to show for it. Uh, it's only two or five or 10 years later that the ultimate outcome is very favorable. Now, eventually, you could get to a point where you get some kind of uh, benefit just from the workout itself. It feels good to go and move your body and so on. But I think for most people, in the beginning of a new habit, you don't have that benefit yet. First time you sit down to write, it just feels like, man, I'm stupid. I don't even know how to put words to the page. It's not, it's not easy. Um, and so uh, I think that would be my, how I distinguish what is a good habit and what is a bad habit. Well, pretty much all habits serve you in some way, even your bad ones. But for the bad habits, they tend to serve you in an immediate fashion and not serve you in the long run. But your good habits, they, while they may be hard in the moment, they serve you ultimately. And so um, I think that the answer to your question then is we, for whatever reason, evolutionary pressure, uh, a need to take care of our immediate needs in the moment rather than our delayed needs in the future, we seem to be wired to prioritize the present moment. Um, if you want to think back 100,000 years to other animals or our ancestors or whatever, it's much more important to make sure that you eat right now than it is to secure a meal two weeks from now by storing berries in, you know, in the cave or something. Uh, it's much more important to take shelter from a storm uh, than to stay out and you know, keep searching for food or whatever. Like, you're very much prioritized to respond to the immediate threat. But now in modern society, we have this weird society where, so that, that old version, that's what scientists call an immediate return environment. Now we live in what is mostly a delayed return environment. You go to school uh, for four years so that you can get a degree years from now. Um, you show up to work so you can get a paycheck in two weeks. You save for retirement so that you can retire in a decade. A lot of our actions, a lot of the habits that we want to build, studying, working, saving, um, they have very delayed payoffs. So uh, the answer, I think, is that bad habits tend to provide immediate rewards and our brain tends to be wired to prioritize immediate rewards. And so we often find ourselves easily slipping into bad habits, but having to exert more effort to slip into the good ones that have longer term payoffs, 
but maybe don't uh, light up the pleasure or reward centers of your brain and in as an immediate of a fashion. So just on that, we interviewed Chris McChesney, who's said to be a world expert in execution, used to study with Stephen Covey, still works at Franklin Covey. Mm-hmm. Wrote a book, I think, called The Four Disciplines of Execution. Yeah, 40X. I, I haven't read it, but I yeah. know it. Yeah. He was fantastic. And he was in Australia uh, not long ago doing a speaking tour. And he said to us that if you want to motivate people, give them, give them small wins. Mm. Like small wins is the best way to do it. And I think it's kind of what you talked about just a minute ago on the show. You talked about, you know, find those wins. Is that a way that we can stick to good habits to actually find those small things as victories, even though it's a long-term game, sure. to find those. Is that something, because I think, I remember that's actually something you talk about in the book, is finding those little wins along the way. Yep, yeah, that's a really key part of the process. I mean, you, this could go by many phrases, you know, chunking it down or turning it into baby steps or whatever. But the real key, no matter what you call it, is you need to have signals of progress. Basically, one of the most effective forms of motivation for the human mind is a feeling of progress. If you feel like you're moving forward, even if it's a little bit slower maybe than what you would like, you have pretty much every reason in the world to continue because you're, you know, you're seeing the gains. You're, you're moving toward the final destination that you want. But as soon as signals of progress vanish, as soon as progress um, fades or becomes invisible or difficult to uh, make tangible or concrete, then all of a sudden you start questioning whether you're doing the right thing, should I quit, should I keep with this? I felt this very acutely when I was working on Atomic Habits. I, I didn't realize that this was so important for me as a writer, but for the first three or four years that I wrote on the blog, I would write an article, spend 10 or 20 or th- maybe even 30 hours on it, but it would get published on Monday or Thursday. And then I would immediately, within an hour, get emails from readers saying, oh, I like this or I didn't like it or whatever. But I was getting feedback very quickly. Uh, but then with the book, I signed the book deal and then I just write, wrote and then showed up the next day and wrote and did that for, you know, and it's like seven, eight, nine, ten months. And I, I got like a year in and I was like, man, am I even on the right track here? Like, I, I don't need a thousand people to read it, but I just need someone to tell me if I'm making progress. And so hiring an outside editor and getting some feedback from my publishing team, that was a really key step for me that I didn't realize that I needed because I just needed signals of progress. I needed some evidence that I was moving in the right direction. And uh, I think for pretty much any long-term project, that's crucial. But it's also crucial for building any habit. You know, like we, we want to feel like we're making progress. This is one of the weird things about uh, <laughs> choosing a smaller habit to start with rather than a large one. You know, like in many ways, even if you want your ultimate goals to do 100 push-ups, you might be better served starting by choosing to do one rather than 100. Because you can do one today and then you can scale up to two tomorrow and then three. And the feeling of making gains every day, that's very motivating. Right. Reinforce that identity. You can sort of think of every habit sort of has a certain amount of energy associated with it. Like an, uh, you call it almost like an activation energy. Um, and so the, uh, the energy required to do 100 push-ups, really high. On your good days, when you're motivated, you feel fresh, yeah, you probably hit it in some way. Um, but on the bad days, when you're tired, yeah, it's just, it's really easy to not do that. So you, and I think especially early on, you want to pick a habit that has very low activation energy, easy for you to stick with, easy to gain those signals of progress. Interestingly, something you just said, at the very end of the book, you thank your wife, Christy. Yeah. And you said, of course, thank you to my beautiful wife. Thank you for believing in me. Was there a lack of belief in yourself through the process? Did you, did you need someone there 
during those times where you're writing five, 10,000 words, you go, man, I just need somebody. Was that really important for you to have Christy who could say, hey, you can, you can do this? Yeah, well, it's definitely important. And she played a crucial role. She played about every role someone could play in a book in the <laughs> sense it was like, someday she's like an editor, someday she's like a therapist, someday is like very, very wide ranging. So in that sense, very helpful. Also, uh, she has different interests or reads differently than I do. She's got a different lens for viewing the world. So sometimes a really good person to like test ideas with, just kind of bulletproof the ideas or, you know, yeah, like it just, it makes it, it makes the, the work better. Um, so in that sense, very crucial. Uh, in the sense of self-doubt, uh, my first response was, I never doubted myself. I definitely doubted if the book would happen. I definitely doubted the project, but not myself. I thought, I know I can do it. I wonder if other people think I can too. If, does the publisher <laughs> think this? Because like they might not think it and then it's going to get cut, right? Um, and so I was, uh, that part of it, uh, she was very helpful for, for getting through the like, ugh, I, you know, I, I feel like I can make this happen, but I wonder if everybody else is on the same page. And she was someone who was, and so that helped a lot. Was that a matter of focusing on the process, not the outcome, in that, we had Logan Gelbrick from Deuce Gym in mm -hmm. LA on, on the show, and it was, we, we, we love Logan's stuff. And he talked about, a lot of people say we focus on the outcome, like the outcome of the book, book being on the shelf, publisher liking it, but he said we should focus on the process. Did you find you had to focus just on, take your mind out of whether they'll like it with Christy's help and right. focus on the process itself? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, the way a book gets written is one sentence at a time, one word at a time. So if you're focused on the system or the process of writing words, then that definitely helps. And this is one of the core ideas in Atomic Habits is that we do not rise to the level of our goals, we fall to the level of our systems. And so in my case, like, it doesn't matter that the goal was to write a best-selling book or whatever you want to say it was. Um, the system was, am I showing up and writing each day? And so in that sense, it was very important to focus on the system. Interestingly, I and this is I like I like the fact that I wrote about habits because I had to practice it. I like writing about topics I have to live out to, right? Like it's it's one thing to have a, an idea, but at the end of the day, most people can have a decent idea. Um, being able to live an idea requires a lot more effort. You know, it's that whole like um, in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice, there is. And uh, so the practice of writing it was much harder than you know being able to talk about it, but that concept of we do not rise to the level of our goals, we fall to the level of our systems. And I, I, you know, in that sense, I had to keep reminding myself of that when I was writing Atomic Habits. It was almost like a reminder to myself that because we're very, humans are goal-seeking organisms in the sense that like we're wired that way. I mean, you're wired to look for the next meal, for the, you know, to focus on the outcome, the result that you want, to strive. Um, we have to, to survive. Uh, you know, at a minimum, you have a goal of getting the next meal. Um, and so uh, I think it, we focusing on the goal is a very natural thing to do and reminding yourself to focus on the system, to come back to center, to focus on the process. That has to be a continual conversation to bring yourself back to the thing that can ultimately lead to the, the outcome that we also badly want, right? Like your outcomes in life are often a lagging measure of your habits, you know, like your Physical fitness is a lagging measure of your eating and training habits. Your knowledge is a lagging measure of your reading and learning habits. Your uh, bank account is a lagging measure of your financial habits. We all want the outcome. We want a better body or more money or whatever. Um, but the thing that needs to change are not the results. It's actually the habits behind the results. And so that idea of 
you do not rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems. It's all about that, about coming back to the habits and the system, the process that precedes the outcome that you are striving for. Is it, is it, I've heard you say it's motion. Sorry, it's not motion, it's action, is a, is a term you use. Mm-hmm. Do you find more and more, James, that we're focused on, we, we feel like we're doing a lot, we feel like we're busy, we feel like we're grinding, but we're actually in the, doing the wrong stuff, that motion is getting in the way and confusing us in part of actually doing the right actions? Yeah, almost certainly. I, I had somebody ask me a question on Twitter. They said, what's one thing everybody in the world could get better at? And I had trouble coming up with an answer for a little while, but then I, maybe I sat on it for a day or so, and I, the answer I came up with is allocating your attention. Almost certainly, there's nobody in the world who is always focused on the highest and best use of their time. Um, and so that ties in with this idea of motion and action. You know, there's a, there's a famous quote, I can't remember who said it, it was a, uh, some French uh, philosopher or author, I think, and basically it was like, don't confuse progress with motion, right? A, a rocking horse is always in motion, but it doesn't make any progress. Um, and I think there are a lot of tasks like that that we work on each day that, yeah, they're very active, uh, but yeah, they don't get you a result. And uh, I've been thinking about that more and more now as the book has come out and done well. It's like, what is the highest and best use of my time now? Uh, where should I be focused if I want to make the biggest impact or work on something meaningful for a second book or something like that? It makes you ask a lot of questions about where you're spending your time, what is the highest leverage use of your time. Um, yeah, and so I think almost certainly that's something that pretty much everybody could benefit from is transitioning from motion to more action, transitioning from work that's not leveraged to high leverage work. Yeah, doing the things that make the biggest impact. Do you consider yourself to be a minimalist or do you subscribe to the minimalist philosophy? Because I've heard you on the show with the boys and that was a show about being a minimalist or minimalism. Do you relate to that? Is that, is that an identity you relate to? Is it part of your makeup? Um, I relate to it in a certain sense. Like I, uh, I think the ideal definition of minimalism is not the least amount of things, but the optimal amount of things. And I really identify with that. I, I like the question, um, like, what are you optimizing for? You know, what, what are you trying to optimize for in your life? Some people optimize for money, some people optimize for time. Some people optimize for family or relationships. Like it can be a variety of things, but um, figuring out what that answer is for you, I think, is really crucial. And that kind of ties in with the minimalism idea, which is once you figure out what you're optimizing for, a lot of the other sh- stuff should be cut. You know, I mean, there are a lot of things that we people spend a lot of time working on. I guess we could call them like borrowed goals, uh, goals that are borrowed from society, borrowed from your friends and family, borrowed from your neighbors, the people you go to school with. Uh, that don't really help you achieve what you're trying to optimize for. But they sound good and society will praise you for them or you won't be criticized for doing it in the very least. And so it's easy to spend time on. I think a philosophy of minimalism, if it's applied in that sense, what is the optimal amount of things? It helps you get closer to whatever that, we want to call it true north is for you. Um, And so I I identify with minimalism in that sense, uh, in the sense that Simplicity is often like on the other side of complexity. It requires a lot of work to figure out what am I optimizing for? What's important to me? What are the factors in this very complex situation that matter most? But then once you figure that out, it actually turns out there's not that much to do. There are only a few really important things to focus on for you. And that part of it. That's changed for you too, because you said to the guys on that show that you've had to become more disciplined with your time 
of what's important because now you've got more stuff. You know, million copies sold, New York Times bestsellers, you're in demand, you're now touring and doing stuff. Mm-hmm. So where before you were writing the blog, now you are not just a writer of blog but also an author, which leads into a lot of other opportunities. You've actually had to become even more stricter, which is the Queensland term for strict, Yes. with your own time, haven't you? Like, you've had to actually do it more yourself. Yeah, that's probably been one of the most uncomfortable pieces of growth for me over the last year. I mean, the book has only been out a year and a month. I mean, it's, only, yeah, it's, it's you know still fairly new. But the amount of change I've had to make uh, in that time has been very significant. And it's mostly coming down to what you're mentioning here, this idea of like, now suddenly I have to prioritize in a very tight, the, the filter has to be much tighter than it was before. Um, and that's been uncomfortable and weird in some senses because like things that I was saying yes to 12 months ago now don't make sense at all. It's like this would have been the coolest thing that came across my desk, you know, a year ago. But now it's like, no, you don't have time for that. Uh, so that part's weird. The other thing that's a little bit strange, and I think this is true not just for authors, but for pretty much anybody who succeeds in their particular domain, is that as you become more successful, naturally more opportunities come your way. And some of those opportunities are cool and new and novel and exciting. And the more that you say yes to those new things, the less time you have for the thing that got you there in the first place. And so it almost becomes like self-defeating uh, in the sense that you're spending time on all this new stuff, which means, oh, now suddenly you can't write anymore, in my case, or do whatever it is the craft is that you're focused on. Um, and so, yeah, at some point you have to decide like what you want. You know, Do you want to just explore super wide and take full advantage of these new opportunities that are there for you and treat the thing you previously did as like, a part, an artifact of your history? Or do you want to say, bring yourself back to center and remind yourself like, no, actually the thing I'm in this for is the craft that I was doing. And I want to stay focused on that. And that means I now have a whole new class of distractions that I have to ignore. Um, and I think the hard part about that, that new class is that they're often good uses of time, not great uses of time. It's kind of easy for most people to, to say like, oh no, I shouldn't waste time on Netflix or YouTube or whatever. Like. Uh, ignoring wastes of time is actually not that difficult for most people, but we all do it, but you kind of generally are like, yeah, okay, I get that I shouldn't be spending time. But it's like items that are number three, four, five, six on your to-do list. Those are like the most dangerous ones because they look like opportunities and you can rationalize spending time on them because you're like, no, this is a pretty good use of time. It's item number four for me. But actually, those things are really preventing you from spending your time on one and two. And so that level of prioritization is very difficult. So that leads me to a very important question. Given that, this show would have to be, if lucky to be on that page, we would be down at the 12 or 13 things of high priority in your tour here Mm. in Australia. And I couldn't work out why you would come and spend time with us when you had all this important stuff to do. Then I saw a quote, and the quote was, you should fall in love with the boring. And I went, that's it. That's why he's come here. He's just living it out. He's going, you know, these guys will be boring as. I love it. Let's make it happen. Tell, tell me about why, why should we fall in love with boredom? So first, before I let you get away with that. Um, so uh, mostly the way that I treated this Australia media tour was like, well, I can't just keep, I can't let podcasts or interviews or whatever creep into my day all the time, like every now and then. It's like, oh, I got one on Wednesday and then another one on Friday and then two next Monday and whatever. Because then every day just gets fractured. And so instead I'm like, no, okay, this whole day is dedicated to media. So, you know, I did two TV segments this morning. I did your podcast, another interview. So like, it's all together. And so basically it was like, all right, today, that's a media day. Um, And so that's kind of how I treated it to kind of keep my brain in the same space. Uh, And one of the reasons why we're here. (laughs) <laughs> um, 
But falling in love with boredom. Uh, I think it's a crucial question. Um, it's crucial because the more that you do any behavior, the more it becomes a habit, the more expected it becomes. And the more expected something becomes, the less it surprises you, the less it delights you, the less uh, novel it is. And when the behavior is expected and the outcome is expected, when you know what's going to come next, you start to get bored with it. Because you're like, there's nothing new about this. I, I know this game. I've played it before. And um, Machiavelli has this quote, which I mentioned in the book, where he says, like, men de desire novelty to such a degree that those who are doing well want it just as bad as those who are doing poorly. And I've seen that a lot with some of my habits. I have this buddy who I train with, the weight training. And he was really strong. And he was doing a squat program that was working really well for him made all this progress over like four months. And then I went off and wasn't at the gym for a while. I was traveling and working out at a different place or whatever. And I saw him like three or four months later. I was like, hey, how are things going? Are you still doing that program? And he was like, no. I was like, oh, why'd you stop? Did it stop working? He was like, no. And I was like, well, what, what changed? He was like, I just got bored. And I was like, <laughs> it was getting results. And yet he still switched, right? Yeah. And um, I think uh, it's kind of like, you know, don't complain about not having a cake if you don't follow the recipe. You know, it's like, you need to stick with it. Um, and so for that reason, learning how to either fall in love with boredom, uh, realize that's part of the process of mastery, um, that pretty much masters have somehow figured out a way to show up even if they're bored. Um, and so that's the first option. Second option is, well, let me find a new detail to get fascinated about. Uh, and so to continue the weightlifting example, so you could do like front squat, right? You put like the bar on your, on your shoulders. Well, my dad just told me about this new cue that I hadn't heard before, where um, if you focus on keeping your elbows out, that naturally um, will straighten your upper back as you're doing front squat, keeps you in a better position. Well, I hadn't heard that before. Oh, there we go. No, back in the water. Okay. <laughs> hey, has been pulled over. Put your, bugs, put your budgie smugglers on. So I hadn't heard that before, but then next time I go into the gym, well, now I have something new to focus on. I can do the same boring thing that I've done before, which is, you know, sets of front squats like usual. But now suddenly I can think about keeping my elbows out. And that gives me one little aspect of the same habit that now can make it interesting. Uh, and so I think finding small details in your habit that can bring new life to it, that's a way to kind of handle that inevitable boredom that comes by doing the same thing over and over again. You know, if we want to take it to something else like writing, for example, well, if you're bored with your writing habit and you know that every day at 9 a.m. you sit down to write for 20 minutes and that's not exciting anymore, now you could focus on a new aspect like... Uh, writing the very best title as possible. And you go to the New York Times and you look at all the best articles on the site. What do those titles do? Put them all into a spreadsheet. Pull your favorite books off the shelf. What are the titles for all the chapters there? Put those into the spreadsheet. Uh, look at BuzzFeed. What are the titles that are going viral? Put those into a spreadsheet. And then once you got this whole list, then you can be like, are there any patterns here that I can learn from? Is there anything I can optimize? And now you sit down to write at nine. It's the same habit as normal, but you have a new detail to focus on. Maybe I can take one of those little insights and I can start to tweak the, the um, title like usual. And I think that that comes uh, back to some of the other principles in the book, like trying to find a way to get 1% better each day. You know, like it's, can I take that philosophy? Can I try to find a small margin for improvement, a little 1% advantage to carve out and apply that to whatever the habit is that I'm normally bored with, that I'm normally working with? If I can, then maybe it's interesting today. So I think there are kind of two buckets of options there. One is, Fall in love with the practice, fall in love with boredom. This is just how it is, like, except that you have to put the reps in. And the other is, well, I need something new to focus on to keep me excited about it. That'll get me to show up today. Mm. Is that 
Is that an example of the Goldilocks principle? Because you, you tell the story of Steve Martin, and because we love our, we love our comedy on the Mojo Radio Show. So the Steve Martin story is an absolute cracker that relates back to Goldilocks. Is that an extension of what you're talking about? Yeah, so uh, Steve Martin, he, he talks about this in his biography, Born Standing Up, is really good. Um, basically what he says is that uh, when he started out in comedy, he barely had any material. He had like one or two minutes and when he was in uh, grade school or eighth grade or you know something. When he was in high school, he had like a five minute show. And then each year, when he was 16, 17, 18, he started to add a minute or two uh, to it. And so it kept getting more increasingly difficult, but he like, basically he, once he had five minutes of material, then he tried to create a seven minute show. Once he had seven minutes of material, he tried to create a 10 minute show. And so um, he was kind of constantly nudging the goalpost forward so that he knew he had enough material to succeed. He even said it sometimes uh, he would do a five minute show and then read two minutes of poetry. Cause that was all, he, that was all, that's the only way he could get through the seven minute show. He didn't have anything else good. but. Um, but he knew he had enough to succeed, but he also had enough to stay challenged. And uh, that's what the Goldilocks rule says, is that humans experience peak levels of motivation when they're working on tasks of just manageable difficulty. Not too hard, not too easy, just right. I always like to compare it to uh, like playing tennis. You know, if you play against Roger Federer or Serena Williams, it might be cool for a minute, but it's gonna get boring pretty quickly because you're gonna lose every point. If you play against a three-year-old, it might be cute for a minute, but it's gonna get boring pretty quickly. You're just gonna win every point. But if you play against someone who's like your peer, someone who's your equal, they win a few points, you win a few points, you got a chance to win the match, but only if you really try. That's actually incredibly motivating. That's like when you get into flow state, you're like fully engaged, know that I have a chance to do this, but I got to be you know, fully present. And that's kind of the Goldilocks rule in action. And I think some of those things that I was just mentioning, like looking for a title to optimize or a slight technique cue to focus on in the gym, that's maybe a way to make this just a little bit new, a little bit harder, a little bit difficult. I know I can succeed, but I still have a challenge. Um, yeah, it's, it's a way of kind of staying in that Goldilocks zone of optimal motivation. That, that Steve Martin story, Billy Connolly tells a similar one. Uh, he was out here on tour and he had six shows at the Sydney Opera House. And a mate of his is, uh, is Ken Doan, the Australian, a, a famous Australian artist. And Ken challenged him that Every night, he couldn't tell the same joke. He had to do six, six, six nights <laughs> six without telling the material. same joke, with, all with new material. And Billy went, Billy's answer was, nobody's got 12 hours. Well, it turns out Billy Connolly did. He ended up doing the whole six shows and not the same joke twice. That's insane. Which is really crazy. Yeah, that's yeah. a crazy uh, burden to put on yourself. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So with that Steve Martin story, you talk about the fact that when he was a kid in school, he would test material. It would work. It would bomb. He'd write new material, test it, he would bomb, get some good stuff. One thing I heard you talk about, which I think is such an important point, is in order to do this, we have to be, we have to be willing to experiment, don't we? We have yeah. to be willing to have a crack. Steve Martin did it. Billy Connolly did it. But that question of are you prepared to experiment, that seems like a fundamental part of what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, if you want a chance at a better life, you have to at least be willing to experiment with a new life or a different life. You know, like you, you have to be willing to uh, try something new in order to have the possibility of discovering something useful. Like pretty much when you're born, you come into the world and pretty much nothing is known, right? Like as an infant, you literally only have the world that's maybe like a foot around you. You can't even really see beyond that. And gradually, as you grow up year after year, day after day, you start to more widely explore the world around you. So in that sense, everything useful, everything known comes out of the unknown. 
Um, and so in order to find a more useful strategy, in order to come across a more useful insight, in order to develop a better strategy for your business or your life or your relationships or whatever, uh, you have to be willing to explore some unknown territory that you had not previously explored. And uh, so in that sense, yeah, we all need the willingness to try new things uh, because that's the only place that new information comes from. Now, there's a secondary problem, which is like you can have good information that you're not utilizing, and that happens a lot too. Um, you know, most people don't need to buy a new book as much as they need to make the most of the books that are already on their shelf, right? Uh, so that there, there are kind of two classes of problems there, which is I heard something, but I'm not putting it into practice. And that's what I like to summarize as the, there's a big difference between saying everybody knows this and everybody does this. Like just knowing about something doesn't really do a whole lot for you. You have to implement it. But assuming that you need a better strategy, assuming that you want to find a better way to do the work, then exploring the unknown or being willing to try things is... I think probably the only option. Mm. Two more things. You were playing basketball as a kid, uh, baseball as a kid. You believed that you had a future in baseball. Then you got whacked in the face with a bat badly. And that did a lot of damage and you were pretty messed up. You got through that, came back, but then got cut from the varsity team. And you said you went on to Radio National to try and find a song to make you feel better about it. Do you remember the song you played? Um, no, I don't think I found one. (laughs) I think what I remember is just sitting in the car crying and just switching from one song to the next and just hoping to feel better. Um, But I don't know, like all things, uh, like all traumas, they, uh, they fade with age and you move on and find something new to focus on. And, uh, I don't know. I just needed a little bit of time to kind of, you know, wallow in it for a second, but I, um, my wife, her mom told her a good thing. She, she had a time when she was in school where she was upset. She tried out for a play or she sang competitively for a while. She tried out to sing or something and didn't get the role. And, uh, her mom told her, okay, you can be mad about this for a day. And, um, I like the idea of like progressively as you get older, just shrinking that amount of time, you know, like, all right. Yeah, when you're 15, you can be mad about it for a week. And when you're 20, you can be mad about it for a day. And when you're 30, you can be mad about it for an hour and then move on. <laughs> you know, like there's just, there's a lot of life to live and time is short and precious. And uh, the better that you get at handling that stuff, the more you realize that there is no one um, event that will shape you or that will determine your future as long as you're willing to keep moving forward. So I turned 50 this year. How old? How long yeah, am I allowed to be minute. mad about that? One minute. <laughs> one minute. One minute. <laughs> so if we talk about the two things, you talk about the book. If you had to pick a song that now the book is out, it's done good. If there was a song that was the soundtrack to Atomic Habits, lyrically or musically, what song is the soundtrack for your book? Ooh. <laughs> Is it a song for the process of making it or for a song for like how I feel now that it's done? Your choice. Because <laughs> if, if it's a song for how I feel now that it's done, I don't know. I want to pick something you'd play at a wedding. <laughs> it's, like, it's like Shout or, I don't know, Earth, Wind & Fire, yeah. September. Something, if, something like that. See if Love, you know? the Honey Drippers or something like, like yeah, that. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's been a fun process, though. Um, I don't know. I've learned a lot about myself through it, and uh, I'm, I'm just glad that it was worth it. 
uh, you know, like there, I think it would have been worth it anyway in the, in the personal growth sense, but it's nicer for it to be worth it this way in the sense that it's also making a meaningful impact for people. Um, so yeah, I don't that know. sets up almost my last question for you before I hand you over to Robert, uh, for an experiment. When, when you write a book, you're on the road, you're getting a lot of feedback, media are asking you questions. You've been interviewed by some really fantastic people on podcasts. Now the book is a year old, a million copies are in the marketplace. It's made all the bestseller lists. Well, if you were writing a next chapter to it, what would you include? Because the other thing is you, you, do, you go into a bookshop and you hear these incredible stories of people who just want to share their story with you. They get your book, they really like your writing, you as an author, they just want to hear your story. You collate all that. A year later, the next chapter, what, what would you write about you'd like to include? Yeah, there's, uh, there's definitely one topic that I would add a chapter on now um, or that I've, uh, when I wrote the book, I thought it was important, but I didn't realize it was as important as I think it is now. So I think it's chapter nine or chapter 10 in the book is about the influence of family and friends on your habits. So it's about like the social environment. And that is an aspect that I think I, I knew it was important. I wrote a chapter on it, but I underappreciated just how important it is. So like, um, you know, uh, so many of our behaviors are a result of the social environment that we're in. Um, why am I wearing sunglasses right now? I don't have to be, but we're at the beach. Just cool, right? And it's the, cool. yeah, it's just well, cool. Well, they're yeah. wayfarers, and they're wayfarers too. I mean, come on. Sun never sets on a badass. <laughs> just like, so, like, we make so many choices about what to do based on the context of the place that we're in. Um, you move into a new neighborhood, and you walk outside on Tuesday night, and you see your neighbors cutting their grass. Well, why do we trim our hedges and cut our lawns? Partially, it feels good to have a clean lawn, but mostly it feels good to have a clean lawn because you don't want to be judged by the other people in the neighborhood, right? Or, um, I don't know, why do people wear a suit and a tie to a funeral? Uh, well, mostly because if they showed up in a bathing suit or gym clothes, they would be judged and that would be weird. It would violate the social norm. And so everything from what we wear to the way we act, the things we say, it's almost like a fish in water. We don't even realize it. We're just constantly surrounded by social norms and expectations. And so the reason I think this is so important, the reason I would add a chapter to it on the book is that a lot of the strategies in the book are about how to get started with habits. There are quite a few that are about how to stick with habits, but the ultimate thing that determines whether a habit sticks or not in the long run, over a year, over two years, over five years, why do people mow their lawns for 20 years, right? It's the social expectation. That's the thing that really solidifies a habit and whether it sticks and stays as part of your life. I think, um, we all are part of multiple tribes. Like some of those tribes are big, what it means to be American, what it means to be Australian. Some of those tribes are small, like what it means to be a neighbor on your street or a member of your local CrossFit gym or whatever. But all of those tribes have a set of shared expectations. And when habits run against the expectations of the group, they're very unattractive. It's not, it's not good to, it doesn't feel good to stick with them because it, it casts you out, it ostracizes you. When habits go with the grain of the social expectations of the group, they're very attractive. And so um, if people have to choose between, oh, I get the habits that I want, but I'm kind of cast out from the crowd, or I sort of have habits I don't really want or I'm not that excited about, but I get to belong and fit in, most people would rather be wrong with the crowd than right and by themselves. Most people would choose belonging over loneliness. And so the, the desire to belong especially in the long run, often overpowers the desire to improve. 
And for that reason, I think the ultimate punchline to this is you want to choose a group to join a tribe where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. If it's normal in that group, then it's going to be very attractive to stick with it in the long run. And you're going to build friendships with people who have the same habits that you want to have so you can rise together. And so I think uh, that is definitely an area that I would put more emphasis on if I could do it again. One more thing, just based on that. You and Christy don't have kids yet, do you? So this is not asking you as an expert in children or parenthood. From your observations, and if you were to hallucinate, how does a parent approach that with children? Because that sounds like it could be quite a profound thing to have front of mind for a parent. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's a good question. There's a book called The Nurture Assumption by Judith Rich Harris, and uh, talks about this a lot, the, what I'm going to kind of say in the answer here. Um, yes, I think that first, when kids are young, and you see pretty much anybody who has a two-year-old knows this, you curse one time and then they do it endlessly, right? Like they're, they're little sponges. They soak up everything you do. And so early on in a child's life, they tend to imitate their parents a lot. And he, all humans are like this. We're imitation machines, you know, like people buy luxury bags and designer handbags and stuff because they're imitating what celebrities are doing or what other high status people are doing. Um, we act a certain way or say certain things because we imitate the strategies that we see that work. You manage in the same way that your boss does because you're imitating the strategies that work in that workplace. Like all humans are wired in it. But early on, uh, children tend to imitate their parents a lot. But as they get older, they imitate their parents less and less, and they imitate their peers more and more. And so I think for parents, probably the most effective way to think about this is that, one, you want to role model the habits that you want your kids to have. Uh, people don't want to be lectured. They want to be led, right? They don't want to be told that uh, a habit is important to do. It's very hard to, to demand that your kids make a habit a priority when you only make it an option. Um, and so I think living that out, that's one very effective way to do it. But the second thing is to realize that a lot of the habits they soak up as they get older are going to be from their peer group. And so I think about like, I played baseball, but I also played a variety of other sports growing up. And when I, the, all the swimming teams that I was on, all those kids got good grades. And so I, even in college, swimming and cross country, those two teams, they were all filled. They always had the highest team GPAs. And um, so if you want your kids to soak up uh, good study habits, I always think about like, yeah, why not get them into swimming or get them into cross country? You know, like all their friends are going to be talking about getting a high test score or studying for the next exam or whatever. And it's like, well, if all my friends are doing this, then I kind of want to do it too because that's how I belong to the group. That's how I gain status in that group. And so um, you don't have control over what your kids' friends will do, but you do have influence over what groups they're exposed to what extracurriculars they're in, what school district they go to, what um, sports they play, what uh, music or musical instrument they take up, all that kind of stuff. And modeling habits. So I think that's pretty powerful. The parents yeah. need to and so I, well, I, so I think yeah. those two, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, in concerts, like let me live out the habits. Let me be a, let me showcase the habits I think are important for them to build. Um, and then let me try to expose them to friend groups that may have the ones that, you know, may benefit them as well. Those are probably your two best strategies. If you could go back to high school, what would be the one habit that you would pick up that you probably regret not picking up now? Huh. Um, I probably wish I would have started weight training earlier than I did. Uh, maybe not way earlier, but maybe like three to five years earlier. Uh, that would have been, it would have been beneficial for my athletic. So that's, that's mostly why I think about that. Um, I really didn't start writing until after I got out of college. Like, so that, that was very, 
I probably could have benefited from that a lot more. Um, but I think probably the one that would have made the biggest difference uh, if I would have built it earlier is reading for fun. Um, because in school, I was always just reading whatever I was assigned. And school is like a game to me in the sense that I, I enjoyed school. I liked it, but mostly just because I kind of knew how to play the game. And it was more about getting the result that what we talked about earlier, process versus outcome. To be perfectly honest, like I didn't really care if I learned anything as long as I got a good grade. And um, I think if I would have read for fun, if I would have read what interested me, even if it was totally outside of, um, of what was assigned in school, that really would have benefited me a lot. I would have been able to pursue my natural interests earlier rather than just pursuing whatever I was assigned. Um, and so I think that's probably the biggest one. I also mentioned reading because reading is kind of the ultimate meta habit in the sense that no matter what habit you want to build, no matter what you want to get better at, you can read about it. Yeah, you can you want to build a cooking yeah, yeah. habit? We got cooking books. Yeah. You want to learn how to meditate? We got books on that. You want to learn how to do a front squat? We have books on that. You want to learn how to surf? Like, go ahead and read, you know, read till you can't read anymore. I mean, we got, we have books on almost everything. So it's almost the center of the habit universe then. In that sense, I yeah. think there are certain habits that are like meta habits. You've got, by reading, you can learn about any other habit or improve it with that. Sleep, getting good sleep makes your, increases your ability to perform pretty much any other habit. Um, most health habits are kind. You could make an argument or something sure. like that, um, and then maybe asking questions too. Developing a habit of being curious or questioning things that can lead to a lot of like provoking or poking at the box and like mm. finding different areas that you can improve. Mm. So um, yeah, there are quite a few habits that are sort of meta and impact like all the others that sit below it. Well, let's uh, let's segue into something which is an Australian habit. Robbo, <laughs> do you want to take this away? You're going to have to trust me here, mate. I'm going to get you to close your eyes. Okay. All right. And I'm going to hand you something. It's okay. Just, it's, 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 I'll, t I'll give you this much. It's a plastic spoon. All right. I just want you to taste what's on it. <laughs> I'm going to get you to have a taste of what's on there. Okay. And we're going to get your reaction. Is All it right? already on the spoon? It's already on the spoon. Okay. So right. three, two, one, go. Okay. You ready? Yep. Go. Right. Oh, so disgusting. <laughs> Is it Vegemite? That, that's oh. Vegemite. And, and, and the, yeah, he, here's the interesting thing, though, and here's where I want your feedback. Millions of Australians... What is wrong with you guys? What is going on? Millions of Australians have the habit of putting oh. that on their toast every morning. This is mine now. No. Gotta, <laughs> all right. Okay. Yeah. But you know what's interesting from that? It, it, is, and it, is, it is a habitual thing for Australians in the morning to have that on toast. Yet, you guys love Dr. Pepper. When Dr. Pepper came out here, we had the same reaction to Dr. You hated Pepper. Dr. Pepper? So we absolutely we all hated it. And that's why it never worked. That's why we sent it back home to the States. What's interesting with that is that I was telling to Robbo in the studio, we're saying we're going to set this up with you, is that environment, yeah. what you grew up with. There's, so I grew up in Cincinnati, thing, Ohio, and uh, there's a restaurant there called Skyline Chili. And they make, they make pasta. It's like, it looks like spaghetti. Um, but you put chili on it as well and cheese. And... Um, if you grow up there, it's the greatest tasting thing in the world. It's like everybody loves it. And if you do not grow up there and you come, you're like, this is the weirdest thing I've ever did. None of this goes together. And um, yeah, so I don't know. There are these like uh, regionally acquired tastes. But they're and, habits. Yeah. Because Australians uh. habitually will go to any buffet, grab a piece of toast, grab some Vegemite. My point is that there must be that thing where you grew up in that, that area that you lived in in Ohio. Yeah. Or you're an Australian, or if you're an Englishman, you start drinking tea. Mm -hmm. We go, tea, let's get your coffee. Or warm yeah. beer. Or warm beer. And yeah. so 
I don't know. This is probably a meta thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting quite sophisticated here now. I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm <laughs> getting in the clear train. Starting to use but big it words. Must be almost that what you grew up with, your environment, can create habits, good or bad. You know, there probably is something. I, I, obviously, people come to to uh, Vegemite at different times in their <laughs> lives. Um, but uh, but there probably is like for a lot of people, it probably reminds them of growing up and sitting in their kitchen or having breakfast or you know like fairly. Um, rewarding memories uh, in some sense or nostalgic in some way uh, maybe it just feels like home um, so yeah there probably are a fair amount of like positive feelings that maybe are associated with it that are not associated with it for but other people but then creates a habit right right well and so that's that's my point is that um, so in the book I talk about for something to be not every behavior in life is rewarding sometimes things are followed with a consequence sometimes they're followed with it's just fairly neutral but in order for a behavior to stick, in order for it to become a habit, it needs to be at least somewhat rewarding. You need to have some kind of positive emotional signal associated with it where are like, hey, that felt good. I want to do that again next time. And so... Um, and Vegemite didn't, did it? Yeah, it, it didn't do it for me. But for many people who grew up here, maybe yeah. it is uh, associated with other positive feelings. Uh, I reckon he's not going to come back. For I think we've done our dash now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, well um, yeah, maybe we should buy him a beer. That might fix it up. James... It's such a pleasure to spend time with you face-to-face. We, we're going to start doing this with people who come to our country to bring them down here to see Bondi, share our beautiful beach, because they don't get your own beautiful beaches back home. But honestly, I actually did love the book. And I found, I was saying to, to Wade, one of the guys that came down to say hello to you today, I found the book, reading the book gave me a much better understanding of Atomic Habits, even than I could hear from interviews hmm. with you. I, I do think it, it is a great piece of literature. Thank you. For you to reinforce what you talk about, which I think is terribly valuable for parents, leaders, children, kids. I thought about that a lot. I, the initial manuscript, the, the first draft of the book was 720 pages. And so the, the final version is about 250. Um, a lot of business books don't need to be 200 pages or 250. They could be a 20-page report. And I really didn't want to write a book that was like that. I really wanted it to be worth the effort or worth the time. And the only way I knew how to do that was to write 700 pages and then figure, well, if one out of every three of these isn't any good, then I got a real problem. <laughs> so we just yeah, gradually right. condensed and compressed, right? Um, and just like retain the potency of the ideas. But anyway, thank you for saying that. It feels good well, to know that you found it useful. I did. I think it's a very, very useful tool and I've recommended it to a lot of people. And I hope that you found, Tali, thank you for setting this up for us. You've been a, a trooper to deal with. And I hope that you found this interview suitably boring that you actually loved it. <laughs> it was really enjoyable. Thank you so much. Live from Bondi Beach, the Mojo Radio Show Summer Series. Happy summer, my friend. Just before we finish, this, this whole little shebang here, we have six bikes set up, atmosphere mics. We have got, what do they call these little, little pillow things over our mic? What do they call them? Mic flags. Mic flags. We have got mic stands. we got mixers. Like, it's a proper ridgy dig, legit setup for outside broadcast. I, I worked for Triple M for 13 years, and I tell you what, this craps on anything we had there. <laughs> and it's all thanks to one guy who was a fan of the show, heard what we wanted to do. We were hiring everything. He said... It's not a sponsorship. It's not advertising. You just said, can we buy it for you? And we went, hell yeah. yeah of course. <laughs> Adam Trouncer from Athletic Greens has come down to say hello to us, provide us with these goodies and say good to James. Adam, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thank you very much, guys. Pleasure to be here. 
first question. Why would you do it? <laughs> yes, why? I'm still asking myself that too, Gary, actually. But uh, love the show. You guys are doing a great job. I love the interviews that you do. And, uh, you know, the least we can do, really. Well, we, um, we, we feel like we have a good simpatico. And just for the folks listening... We've also put Athletic Greens into our Rock Patrol yes, swag pack. Absolutely. So there is that chance for everybody to try it here. But we really appreciate you doing this because um, you've been a great supporter of us on Patreon. Tell us, if you, if you think about Athletic Greens, it is, a, it, is a people, it is a people company. Rather than the product itself, because we've talked about that in the show before. We had Chris on just prior to October. We, talked, we dug into the product. I'd be curious to know that What's the attraction, as a guy who's running it as a managing director, what's the attraction for people to work at Athletic Greens in different parts of the world? Very good question. Well, we are remote, as you said, and I think that's a fascinating new kind of business structure that we've got so that allows people to uh, kind of integrate work into their life uh, in the best way. So uh, we'll have to ask the team why they love it. Um, But from my side, uh, I think it's fantastic to work with different people around the world who all share a common vision or mission, uh, who are trying to do their best work every day and something that they really care about. So I think that's what motivates most of the team internally. What's the challenges with keeping everyone on track with working to the same message when they're spread all over the globe? No, great question. I think it all comes down to communication. Just like in an office, um, we've got to make sure that we've got the right communication and structures in place in order to make sure that everyone knows uh, you know, what, what the dream is, what the vision is, uh, what the goals are and how they're contributing to it. So uh, we spend a lot of time internally making sure that we jump on video calls, we have company updates and things like that. It's certainly not easy, um, but if everyone makes the conscious effort to really understand what's most important for them in that day or that week and how it aligns with the broader vision and mission, then generally we do a pretty good job of that. It's very Black Rifle Coffee Company. It is. That's now, a great we company. had Evan Hafer... In fact, I'm wearing the cap right now. And Matt Best have both been on the program. We also spoke with Jared, who's the third partner in the company. And they are a mission-first, not-me-first organisation. Everything they do talks to their mission. From the boys themselves to the way they present themselves, books they write, videos they do. So as a leader who is leading this organisation... What do you think in your mind is the number one responsibility that you wake up every morning to think about? Another good question. For me, I think it's how can I clearly articulate the vision that we're working towards and how do I help uh, make that real for everyone in the business every single day? So how can they really grasp onto that and understand what they're working on and how it contributes to that bigger picture? and subsequently what impact they're having as a result of getting up and, and doing the work that they do. See, I see Athletic Greens as being a black rifle coffee company. This is new, this is new breed of organisation with a new breed of person who's leading it that's not just, just about metrics. Metrics are important. However, there's a greater mission in, in front of that, I think. And I think having waking up every morning and thinking about that, the other thing I'm curious about with you is you are this new breed of leader who's leading this new style of company. In your own mind, what is the characteristic of a leader who can execute across a mission, not be distracted by the metrics? What's a characteristic that you think is important? Even 
if not even if yourself, if you're too humble to talk about it, but in the people you get to mix with, because you've mixed with some pretty impressive brands around you, how would you summarize the key the key characteristic of this new leader? I think metrics kind of tell you how you're going along the journey, but if you don't know exactly where you're headed, if you can't really picture that vision in your mind, then they'll never really help you get get there in that way. So they kind of measure how you're doing along that path, but I think it's critical that leaders really think about what impact they want to have, you know, what is that dream? What are we building towards? Uh, and then subsequently build structures, people, teams, you know, build the machine around that in that way. So I think metrics are always secondary to me because they tell you how you're doing. They're the scorecard in many ways. But unless you've defined you know, what everyone's working towards and more importantly, actually the why underneath it, uh, it's very easy to get lost. You're a learned guy. I always love our catch-ups because you've always read something, you've always watched something, you've always found something. In the last hundred days, what would you say is something that you've learned and started to implement that's had an impact on how you operate as a leader? In the last hundred days, the thing that comes most to mind is actually small interactions that I've been having with people while traveling. So I think it's very easy to get caught up in the little things in a daily way and forget about um, just those small interactions on a, you know, on a daily basis that can really change people's days or, or even weeks or months. So the one thing that I've been doing recently that I've been very conscious of is making sure that I've been really present in all conversations that I've been having, whether that's with a waiter, whether that's with an air hostess, um, and doing my best to, to connect with them uh, rather than, I guess, flossing over the conversation or just getting into the motion in that way. Uh, it's not easy, especially when you've got a lot going on, but I think taking the time to really uh, be purposeful in those interactions can can create crossroads or, or, or serendipitous moments that you, you'd never otherwise get. You know, I suppose you mentioned that. We've got a, a guest coming up on the show called Jen Pasteloff, who has written a book called On Being Human. She's an amazing, amazing lady. And what's something that made me think of Jen when you just said that is she worked in a noisy restaurant, one of the biggest, the biggest restaurants, the best restaurants in Los Angeles. Aspiring actor, working at a restaurant, waiting tables and did for 14 years and became really good at it and she was deaf and she and i said what did that teach you she said it taught me to really listen because i had to actually make up a lot of things in my mind i had to learn to lip read learn expressions truly lean in and it just gave her a whole perspective and i think you know it's so simple to say to people they, they write it off as a skill but it's a skill that's worth learning and mastering isn't it and what have you noticed when, you, when you've started to do it consciously with people? What, what do you see or feel back? I think you get, uh, you get the best out of yourself as well as the best out of others. So um, to me, the, the best thing is when you can see someone's face just change that little bit because you've really engaged with them or you can kind of, you can feel that shift in energy um, just, by, just by really connecting, you know, in a human way, like you mentioned. So... Uh, it's not selfless too. Like obviously you get, I get something out of it too. It makes my day more interesting and more enjoyable. Um, but it's sort of a one plus one equals five in that respect. It's actually one plus one equals two, Robbo. You know, if I, take <laughs> I you was back, just thinking, I was a little confused there. No, it's a, it's a, it's a millennial thing. Uh, he was distracted by some lovely ladies walking past. I tell you what. Adam, on behalf of us, an AP who's probably locked up somewhere. Yeah, he's he's gone. Uh, Let him go. He's gone. Thank you so much for doing this. This is... 
a great setup. We so appreciate you saying, look, can we can we be a part of this? Yeah. You're, you're a great organization. It's a great product. It's in the summer swag in our Rock Patrol yes. packs, which you're going out. And uh, as soon as AP gets out of the clink, he'll be loading up the Rock Patrols to hit the summer the street. Hit the streets. He's, he's got a license. So thanks again, mate. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. Glad we can contribute and uh, keep doing what you're doing. We love it. The Mojo Radio Show Summer Series. This is Wade O'Shea, and you are listening to The Mojo Radio Show. Live from Bondi Beach. So we are, it's interesting, this is not something you'll be able to see, folks, but Bondi Beach at the moment, although it's beautiful and there is a massive crowd down here and the sun is shining, it's shining through a haze of smoke because in Australia right now we have the worst bushfire situation in the history of our country. And uh, inviting international guests down today, mate, it's, um, but you've got a remarkable fact about smoke, fire and rock and roll. <laughs> Well, they all tie together, don't they? I mean, we, Australia, we're probably known for our bushfires, um, but we do have some fairly bad ones at the moment, as you're well aware. And you too uh, flew into Brisbane the other night and uh, in their concert that evening played, paid tribute to those brave men and women who are out there fighting the fires at the moment. Uh, and as they were leaving the next day, spotted a whole bunch of uh, fireys being deployed on the tarmac at Brisbane Airport, jumped off their plane, ran across the tarmac and introduced themselves and said g'day and said thank you very much. So pretty rock and roll as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I rate you too. I, I, I actually think they are a band with a conscience, a social conscience, and although they are rock and roll stars and they act like rock and roll stars, I've got to say, I think there's a lot more to the band for them as men, as individuals, and knowing the difference they can make. Because once you two go across and thank firefighters, let's face it, whether it's intentional or not, it makes the front page of Absolutely. Every yes. <laughs> Everywhere. Every media, including the Mojo Radio Show. But what that means yep. is that the firefighters, and there are over a thousand of them right now yep. being deployed, yep. firefighters up and down the coast. They started in, in Adelaide recently. They are all over Australia. Mm. We've lost well over a million hectares wow. of, of bushland and farmlands, houses. We've lost lives. So when... When you two bring it and do what they do, it brings attention to the great work all these volunteers are doing because, you know, these are farmers that left their property at 3 o'clock in the afternoon to go to a fire. Yeah. We'll still be there at 2 o'clock in the morning. They ain't being paid. No, that's right. Exactly. And they're losing money. But um, what's probably even more remarkable is I popped over to the life-saving tower before and said thank you to the guys, and apparently that's headline news tomorrow morning. <laughs> we're, okay, we're out. There is a
The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the basement of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. To help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo, you can now find us on Patreon. Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of the Mojo Radio Show. In the meantime, to polish your next audio production, check out voodoosound.com.au. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com. And to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.